0: Hi there, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on the From Poverty to Power blog. It's a beautiful sunny afternoon as I look through my window in lockdown in London and I'm absolutely knackered because we just had our last big teaching day of term at the LSE and I spent seven hours on Zoom debating with some very smart, um, demanding students. And I feel like I've had my brain sucked out through my ears um, over the course of the day. So what better state to talk you through the week's blogs than, uh, than that? Um, first up was a uh, summary of a new paper from Oxfam called How to Confront the Coronavirus Catastrophe. Somebody got a bit alliterative with the title. Um, and this is Oxfam sort of putting together its big, big thinking on uh, what needs to happen. And it had two parts. It had a global public health plan and emergency response. And it will be followed up in due course by an economic rescue plan, Plan uh, ideas around that. But, that. but this first paper was just on the health plan and emergency response. And it had a classic Oxfam killer fact. The amount it would cost to double public health spending for the poorest half of the world's people, who live in 85 of the poorest countries, would be $159 billion a year which is a lot of money. It's about equal to the global aid budget, but it's only 8% of the fiscal stimulus, which the US has just approved. It's $2 trillion stimulus. So it's saying that's what we need. And we can we can put that 159 billion together through a combination of aid and debt relief. Um, and uh, in terms of the emergency response, it's talking about an enormous uh, upsurge of uh, in the numbers of health workers. I think 10 million health workers, it said, were needed. Um A lot of work uh, spending on public education, uh, investment in water and sanitation and making all healthcare free during the course of the crisis so that we can get through this thing. Um, So good, solid sort of proposal from Oxfam there. Then uh, the next uh, post was I just thought, you know, everybody's so down. It's such a hard time. There's so much suffering going uh, all around us. And we're seeing terrible news every night on the telly or in our communities. So let's have some fun. And what I'd seen is some brilliant songs being produced on the theme of the, uh, of the virus and the pandemic. Um, so I put together a CoronaVision song contest and, and, uh, and two categories, public safety songs and sort of covers and spoofs of famous songs uh, um, uh, that we knew already. So public safety was, uh, just went completely crazy. And the reason it went public uh, crazy was that I included a public safety song by the Ugandan singer and opposition leader Bobby Wine, who clearly has a lot of support within Uganda. Somebody called Ashberg Kato put a message on Facebook, we found out later, alerting all Bobby Wine's fans and saying, the winner of this competition is going to become the official WHO soundtrack for the virus which was a great idea. I didn't, yeah, it never occurred to me that viruses or or that epidemics should have theme songs, but it's not true. But it didn't matter. I've never seen, we have never had anywhere near such traffic on the blog. There were hundreds and hundreds of people on the blog all day, Tuesday, Wednesday, and it's only just fading out now on Friday. Um, Bobby Wine absolutely creamed the public safety competition. He got 98.85% of 10,000 votes um, again we've never had anything like it 400 comments you know hilarious ends to the to the to the year in terms of it being the last day of march um and then we had a slightly more even handed competition for covers and spoofs and the winner with about half of a thousand votes was chris mann who did an absolutely hilarious spoof on adele um and his is hello from the inside and it's all just um, about how he's in California dreaming of a burger with cheese, and it's just very, very funny. The other songs are all great, so if you're looking for a bit of light relief, then do go over and look at the Coronavision Song Contest, which I think will probably keep getting quite a lot of hits, uh, even when Bobby Wine's um, hordes stop arriving. Next up, we had a uh, next day we had a piece by Kirsty McNeil of Say the Children and Richard Darlington um, into. Uh, The case for love uh, and and making love a part of the response to COVID. Um, And I thought that was really interesting. They're basing their arguments on a lot of research into public responses to aid and what lessons you can draw. And they're applying those lessons to the COVID crunch. And the key thing, I think, is they're saying, how do we communicate during COVID-19? And they come up with 12 rules. So those rules are appeal to the larger us, the community. Talk about our interdependence, not our interests. Amplify hope. Talk about health workers as heroes. Remind people there's a plan for people and planet. Make it manageable. Put communities at centre stage. Talk about Britain's contribution to the wider collective effort. Be patient about our other issues if they don't fit in this particular moment. Allow for anxieties talk about inequality and practice the cooperation that we preach all good stuff as i discuss this through the rest of the week with people it started to feel quite eurocentric there's there's a lot of love going around in europe but i think that may partly reflect that the, the 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 fact that many governments in europe are doing a rather better job and so the combination of the upsurge in in, in um, mutual health and community responses with the fact that our governments are doing the best they can means that there's a lot of love in europe you don't feel a lot of love when you talk to people from America, from Brazil, from India, where they see division acrimony, blame um, not a love not a lot of love going around there. so I think this may be a bit eurocentric, and that's something I 'll discuss in in the paper I'll talk about in a minute. Um, Next up was uh, a really nice post from my colleague uh, on the Power Shifts project, Maria Fasciolince, who is in the 16th day of her lockdown in a flat in Barcelona. And she's not allowed out. They can't go out for exercise like we can in London. It's really rough. Um, And she's done a post on care in a time of Corona. Care for ourselves and each other. So she's I think a bit critical of the wellness industry because it tends to be very individualistic in its focus. And so she talks about community care and the sort of the way institutions guarantee care through through guaranteeing rights, looking after our neighbours. Um, and then she's got some great sets of links to feminist resources on collective care in crises, to solidarity initiatives, uh, a lot of links to the different mutual aid initiatives around um, uh, that are around at the moment. And I think it's a, it's, a, it's a resource list which a lot of people are going to use over time. And she signed off quite appropriately with Take Care Everyone, which I thought was a very nice touch. A really good resource list there. Last post of the week. My students at the LSE challenged me to apply the course I've been teaching on um, systems thinking and power and activism to the COVID moment. Um, so I've just done a first draft of a paper on COVID as a critical juncture. So I put up a summary of the paper, the link to the full paper, and we're going to have a big Zoom discussion about it, presentation and some discussants, and then a Q&A next Wednesday at 2.30pm UK time. So if you want the link to the Zoom conversation, it's there on the blog. Um, explains what are critical junctures, which are these moments, these crisis moments when the status quo is thrown up in the air and what was impossible becomes possible. New political actors appear, new norms and ideas appear, things change forever. Um, And it talks about the current critical juncture and about how it's acting as a stress test for political systems, Um, whether your political system is democratic, partial democratic, authoritarian, whatever it is, this will be a test of the political system's ability to respond. It's shaking up social norms around gender, care, economy, solidarity, even space. Suddenly people are much more aware and acutely conscious of how valuable private space is, um, right now. Um, it's going to shake up the economy. It's going to shake up aid. You know, everything's going to be up in the air. What I, so I talked a little bit about the kinds of changes that could take place. And then I went and, and, uh, in the system in general, and then I got on to the, well, so what about us, uh, about the implications for advocacy? And I picked up Kirsty McNeil's piece about tone, and I basically think the tone that advocates and campaigners have to use has to reflect where we are in the sequence of the crisis. The crisis has a kind of internal structure; um, it's not a moment in time. It's a it's a you know it could be several years. In the at the first stage, we are bearing witness to impact, okay, and then we move on to advocacy for particular policy responses, maybe debt relief or safety nets. Then we talk about the unintended consequences of existing policy responses, like the possibility, yeah, the likelihood that there'll be a big upsurge in gender-based violence because of the lockdown and and women being trapped in their homes with abusive men. Uh, And then we'll talk about shaping the recovery. And I think the tone and the content have to follow that stage. Right now, in the early stages, you know, I kind of agree with Kirsty that, um, you know, you need to show solidarity not be too angry not to be finger wagging not to say my issue is still really important stop talking about covid you've got to embrace the moment some of your issues will be relevant to the covid response you know gender-based violence being an example others will have to wait um and that's going to be really difficult for advocates who are passionate about their issue i think there are real questions on climate change on this one for me um i think there's real dangers about going negative too early so I think, yeah, the moment there's a lot of love, certain amount of benefit of the doubt, I imagine that that will fade with time, and the bump in approval ratings for political leaders we've seen in the first few weeks will evaporate. In some cases, when political leaders have made a mess, and there will it will get very there'll be a high level of recrimination once the deaths mount up, and the evidence of shortcomings from leaders mounts up. You know, so so the advocates need to judge the tone and not go out too far away from the tone of the public. If you sound angry and shrill at a time when everybody else is feeling bruised and, and into sort of solidarity, then you're gonna lose public trust. On the other hand, there are so many things that need to be addressed right now, you can't just sort of um, do big hug and sit back on your hands. So getting it right is gonna be very difficult, I think, and a, very, a real test for campaigners to get the right tone for the right moment. Um, the paper also talks about new contents. Yeah, the content of campaigning. Some issues will be relevant from before, some will be less so. New issues will emerge, like the private space I was talking about. New threats will emerge because I think Naomi Klein's work on the disaster capitalism and the shock doctrine is exactly right. I was talking to some people yesterday about the amount of uh, crony contracts that have been dealt out in India, where you know um, people well connected to the government are getting some very lucrative contracts for covid related uh, spending that kind of stuff has to be exposed and challenged there'll be lots of other n- negative people taking advantage of the uh, of, of crisis as opportunity, but for all the wrong reasons so there 'll be a big defensive piece for advocacy as well and then the paper ends with a very sort of helicoptery view of what 's going on here. And I just felt when I was reading about the responses to COVID that there were two completely different discourses, different moods going on in what I was reading. When I read about what's going on in the US, in Brazil, in India, it feels a bit like World War One. You know, the the settlement after World War One was punitive. It was about squeezing Germany for reparations. It, it, It destroyed trust and sowed the basis for discord. The institutions that were created after World War One didn't last five minutes like the League of Nations. Contrast that with World War II, where the institutions and the response that came out of World War II was far more um, full of solidarity. It was like global institutions, which we criticise, but have, you know, like the, like the IMF and World Bank or the United Nations. But they have helped helped keep make the world a much safer place for 70 years Um Which will it be? And what I felt when when I'm thinking about this COVID as a critical juncture is that when I think about government responses, it feels too much like World War One. You know, China blaming US, US blaming China. Um, You know, a a G7 meeting fell apart because the Americans were insisting on uh, COVID-19 being called the Wuhan virus. I mean, how how petty is that? What an absence of global leadership. So that all feels very World War I. But when I look at the extraordinary upsurge in mutual aid, in people knocking on doors, looking after their neighbours, the fantastic public support for the National Health Service and the health workers putting their lives at risk, that feels very World War II. That feels like a you know, land fit for heroes. Something big is happening on the ground. So I guess the, the conclusion of the paper is that advocacy's job is to take that extraordinary um, hope of the grassroots and find political expression for it so that it becomes institutionalized and does something positive in the medium and longer term, rather than just become a moment of solidarity, which then just subsides when the crisis is over. So on that note, have a good weekend, everybody. Do come to the Zoom webinar if you can, if you've got nothing better to do at 2.30 next Wednesday. If not, I dare say I'll be in touch. Bye.